Welcome. This is the second portion of uh, the podcast on Dissectionist Theatre, Rembrandt, and the anatomy paintings of the Dutch Golden Age. We left it at the start of these paintings, having previously discussed a bit about the economic and political history of the provinces of Holland. Of the first praelector, Martin Jantz Koster, 1510-1594, elected by the burgomasters to begin the guild's dissections, remarkably little is known except for the fact that he was also a town burgomaster for almost 20 years. In the Amsterdam Council records, there's nothing to suggest that he ever distinguished himself, and what kind of a lecturer or dissector he was is unknown. He's recorded in Amsterdam's Burgomaster list, but with no real annotations. The second praelector, Sebastian Egberts, was also Burgomaster until he was deposed in 1618, then returning to his medical practice. And a later one that we'll hear about, Dr Nicholas Tulp, after retiring his post as praelector in 1650, was elected Burgomaster four times between 1654 and 1672. So these guys were uh, really, in effect, politicians. As the Guild acquired status and with the popularity of these public dissections and dismemberments, it became necessary to construct a purpose-built theatrum anatomiae. Uh, Although its need was recognised, it was not to be built for nearly a century or so. And in its stead, the groundwork could at least be prepared, which chronicled the grandeur of these occasions by their commissioned paintings. We begin our analysis of these anatomy lesson paintings most assuredly in 1603 with the artist Et Peters, 1550-1612, with his painting of the second praelector, Dr Sebastian Egberts, also Egberts de Brie, 1563-1621, who was appointed in 1595, and we conclude um, with the last of this collection by the artist Tibbet Rectus, 1710-1768, in 1758, which featured the praelector Petrus Camper, 1722-1789. Now, in between these two bookends, that by Peters and that by Rectus, um, the Guild would commission the great portraitists of the day, from amongst Thomas de Kaiser, Nicholas Elias Picanoi, Rembrandt van Rijn, Adrian Becker, Jan van Meck, Cornelis Toost, and, of course, Rectors. They were all successful artists. Of both Peters and Egberts, little is known. Peters had, been, had begun painting the Egberts' lesson well before 1603, but he was interrupted by an outbreak in Amsterdam of the plague, which unfortunately took five of the surgeons who were portrayed. At least one of the company, Bartholomeus Willems, was so ill by the time his portrait was painted that a preliminary image drafted at his bedside was then copied into the main canvas. The painting itself is rather wooden and somewhat unremarkable, except for its significance as the first such example of the group portrait of jobbing surgeons at least discussing the dissection of the dead. Now, although the body lies there and dissection is intended by those who carry surgical instruments, no actual dissection is really taking place. There are no visible scalpels, for example, which would have been the first implements to hand. 
and in this it's theoretical but not practical anatomy. Even his dominance is diminished more than that future uh, anatomy lesson paintings would reserve for the prelector. Egbert's appears in this image as a diminutive figure surrounded by much taller men. The only highlight of his importance is the fact that he's the only one whose view is completely unobstructed. He's not even afforded any of the tailored finery that would in future paintings distinguish the prelectors from ordinary fellows. With some decorum, Peters covers the face of the deceased with the sleeve of a man swivelled around to gaze at the viewer at us, but pointing to nothing of anatomical note in particular. With his insistent stare, he's foretelling the surgical intentions in the story and beckoning us almost secretively to take part in something that we would not normally attend. Each member of the company stands or sits in three stiff horizontal lines with everyone turned in three-quarter profile. The Egbert's picture is then very similar in style and stance to Peter's civic guardsman of the company of Captain Jan de Bishop, an ensign Peter Egbert de Vink, which he painted in 1599, a similar sort of posing um, uh, of um, characters. It uh, was very much the sort of formal portrait tradition of the time, with a small scroll to the right providing a permanent testament uh, to all of those who were present. What we know about the group comes from the diary of Johannes Monikoff, 1707-1778, whose task it was in 1750 to create a catalogue of these anatomical pictures. The painting was uh, probably commissioned... Um, uh, to signify the move of the guild. Monikoff included copies of passages from the uh, Hrut Memorial Gildebook, which is now lost, and that describes an inventory of these anatomical uh, paintings. The second image of, uh, of Egbert's, only one of two prelectors represented twice for the Guild of Surgeons by an artist, was probably painted by Thomas de Kaiser, 1596-1667, to in about 1619, although some have attributed it to Nicholas Elias Picanoy, 1588-1656, a much more prominent artist of the time. So I've said before the painting was probably commissioned to signify the move of the guild in the same year to St. Antonisvag, and this second painting of Egbert's has been stylistically compared to other work of Picanoy, but also to another portraitist, Werner van der Walkert, which shows similarities to several pictures, the civic guardsman of the company of Captain Albert Conritzberg uh, and Lieutenant Peter Everts-Hulft, which is held in the Amsterdam Museum, looks very uh, similar uh, to this painting. So it may well be that the artist is Picanoy rather than de Kaiser. Um, it's a traditional inclusion in the group of portraits, but this second image of Egbert's was part of a simpler style, which represents only the bone structure of a cadaver, and it's called the osteology lesson of Dr Sebastian Egberts. And in that sense, we may think of it too as perhaps less of a dissection piece. In it, the prelector is identified, as became a subsequent trademark in these paintings, by a distinctive hat. Uh, details of uh, the skeleton uh, actually have been lost, but it's been claimed that it was the remains of an executed but unnamed English pirate uh, who Egbert's personally dissected 
and whose bones he then articulated for display. As for de Kaiser, he was a very talented artist at the time who lived somewhat in Rembrandt's shadow, particularly after 1630, and he became so frustrated with the art market that he turned his energies to architecture. This second Egbert's painting too is, uh, however, just staged, and it shows that he um, uh, put the men engaged in the consideration of anatomy of the cadaver, but who are not actually performing or really discussing its dissection. The skeleton almost idly separates two relatively disinterested groups of observers and the anatomical exercise and its relevance is almost incidental to the social activity taking place in its midst. The actual anatomy depicted seems also pretty unimportant and it would have worked as a group painting even without the skeletal, uh, skeletal remains like any civic group portrait perhaps losing its social significance but not its artistic value. Two of the company look directly outwards and one looks askance at the viewer aside his shoulder as if seeking our approval and recognition as to his prominence at being in the portrait in the first place. Perhaps he's engaging us to participate or more likely he's there to remind us that this is a group to which we don't belong. One on the right hand side smiles as if smugly pleased to be incorporated in the painting rather than in remembrance of some anatomical point of order. Although the surgeons would have lobbied to be there and paid for the privilege, like the skeleton itself, one imagines that they too were eminently replaceable. But the paintings were considered important pieces and they were the subject of uh, much petty bickering. The general rule was that surgeons once portrayed should be excluded from future paintings, presumably to remove any trend towards dominance of one surgeon over a college or guild. That didn't, however, stop fights over how prominently particular paintings should be displayed. After one of the later group paintings showing the officers Jan Connerding and Gobert Bidlou and Alad Cyprianus by uh, the artist Nicholas Maas in 1679, after that was moved to the front of the Guild Hall and exchanged for the second Egbert's painting, which I've just uh, described, which was banished to a dimly lit corner, there was so much uproar that the city burgomasters were called in to intervene and change the position of the paintings back again. After the death of Egbert's from plague in 1621, the praelectorship fell to Johann Fontaine, 1574-1628. Uh, he was a contemporary of the famous Dr Nicholas Tulp, about whom uh, much later... Now, little is known about Fontaine's dissecting talents, and he occupies no real pride of place amongst those whose names are eponymously attached to various body parts. The Fontaines were a notable local family, but they had little academic distinction. Fontaine was the brother of the apothecary, the Reverend Thomas Fontaine. He was the great-grandson of Dr. Clace Plemp, uh, and his own son, Clace, was a Ram medical graduate who worked as an Amsterdam apothecary around the late 1630s and who later became an inspector for the Collegium Medicum and then in 1644 the personal physician to the Archbishop of Cologne. But beyond these sorts of things, there was nothing particularly outstanding. Um, under Fontaine's direction, a dedicated small anatomical theatre was built within the Way House. We know from Monikoff that Nicholas Pickenoy was invited then in 1625, actually on the 6th of 
September to be exact, to paint Fontaine along with ten surgeons and wardens who had not already had the privilege of their portraits being painted in the previous two lesson pictures. The painting was to be egalitarian with two surgeons, two wardens and six guild assistants, although by the time it was completed in October of 1626, one of the company, Arendt uh, Alerts, had already died. Now, sadly, there's only a remnant of this painting left since a large part of it was seriously damaged in a fire in 1723. Although we know each of the sitters, four of the figures have been lost. Uh, and I won't go through the individual particular um, list, except that this was attempted as a restoration uh, by Jan Moritz Quinkard. The Moritzius curator, current uh, curator Norbert Middlecoop, has ambitiously tried to reconstruct this image of um, Fontaine before it was restored by one of the famous restorers of the period, as I've said, Jan Moritz Quinkard, 1688-1772, who added a table at the bottom and a skull uh, to give it some sort of symmetry. And Middlecoop's Photoshop project of virtual restoration, which he formulated together with the uh, current photo artist Thies Wolfsack, is fancifully speculative and based upon calculations on the canvas suggesting that there would have been sufficient room at the bottom of the painting for a cadaver in the style of the traditional uh, anatomical lesson paintings. In the lower part of the middle coop, Walzak uh, recreation, a corpse has been transplanted from a well-known painting by Michiel van Nierdelt, the 1617 anatomy lesson of Dr. Willem van der Meer, which is now in the Stedelijk Museum in Delft. The van Nierdelt is the only anatomy painting style with a large group portrait that is in southern Holland and was an influential painting which Piquenoy almost certainly would have known about. Uh, even more speculative, the recreation merges the styles of the previous Egbert's paintings by just adding extra heads from the second Egbert's picture and switching the position of the left-hand portraits. But it's a clever rendition um, that, like the originals themselves, requires interpretation. The Delft van Beerevelt painting was renowned as a revolutionary work for its portrayal of its subject anatomicum, the cadaver, even if it shows a rather crude but accurate demonstration of the first day of an anatomical lesson. Within it, however, is a small measure of the artist's interpretation of the raging scientific debate which was taking place in the dissection rooms, with Delft also drawing the battle lines between the Galenists on one hand and those who wholeheartedly believed in Vesalius on the other. Van Mirabelt shows an astute recognition of just this small war, a member of the company at the back of his painting holding a copy of Vesalius's book The Fabrica open to show, and it requires magnification, one of the flayed écorché woodcuts. At the bottom, another man holds a copy of Galen, and Van Mirabelt shrewdly predicts the direction of the emerging new science, painting the page of the fabrica open and in clear brush tones, but the copy of Galen is darkly imperceptible and the book is closed. Certainly the greatest attention amongst the Dutch anatomy paintings has been paid to Rembrandt's 
1632 Anatomy Lesson of Nicholas Taub. It's a very famous painting. And it's no surprise, not only because it's a spectacular painting, but also because as an ensemble piece in focusing so heavily on the cadaver, it broke new ground. There's been so much speculation about this painting that almost any theory concerning its execution and allegory might appear credible. We know so little about how Rembrandt might have conceived of the painting, but it's most likely that he had neither the time nor the interest in the dissectors actually at their duty. As we've seen, the unpleasantness of cadaveric dissection before tissue preservation meant that the abdominal and the thoracic contents needed to be dissected first, and even then quite hastily. The image of the praelector tulp engaged in the isolated dissection of an upper limb would most certainly have been a profligate waste of the rest of a corpse, making the dissection represented symbolic. The hand was viewed by Vesalius, as we know, as the most perfect example of God's accomplishments, its complexity given to man as a gift, not to encourage his progressive development, but rather as a mark of man's intelligence. Tulp in his new position as praelector would have assuredly wanted a distinguishing image, and even though he'd not formally trained in anatomy, he rather arrogantly considered himself a recycled Vesalius, what he called a Vesalius redivivus. Now, it's a conceit that's been suggested by Vesalius's uh, biographer, William Heckscher, as one of the motivations for the painting's style. Um, in this context, encouraging the esteem of his colleagues, a line is then drawn in this painting through the dissection of God's finest piece of handiwork, directly between Vesalius and Tulp. The symbolism of the painting was also likely a contribution of Rembrandt's method of working. He'd settled in Amsterdam just before execution of the anatomy lesson painting, having previously trained under the tutelage of the artist Peter Lastman. Now, although it's unknown where Rembrandt obtained his personal knowledge of anatomy, it's probable that he melded draft copies of body parts that he'd made perhaps from the available anatomical textbooks and from casts and écorché models. We simply don't know. But he clearly kept isolated limbs for private study and drawing at leisure, as during inventory of his estate just before his death, four flayed arms and legs, that's a direct quote of it, were registered amongst the property. And that was re recorded by the genealogist uh, Peter van der Brederode uh, on the 2nd of October 1669 as amongst Rembrandt's effects, two days before uh, Rembrandt died. Tulp, 1593-1674, was born Claes Petersen, and he was a political animal, as I've said before, who adopted the tulip as his family crest in 1622 after being appointed a city alderman, a shepherd, and in showing similarities to the frontispiece of Vesalius's Fabrica, the picture of the anatomy lesson of Dr. Tulp also indirectly references Tulp's own anatomy tutor, who was Peter Poor, whom we've met before, 1564-1617. He had trained with Fabricius, studied in Bologna and Louvain, and had, had been a pupil of Vesalius. And much ink has been spilled about this painting, The Anatomy Lesson of Dr Nicholas Tulp, but it's reasonable to suggest that whether it depicts a real anatomization or not, or whether, as is more likely, that Rembrandt drew the dissection imagery from the safety of his studio, 
has little relevance. But the image has a surprising paradox, showing remarkable anatomical clarity, and yet at the same time a deeply disturbing mistake. Rembrandt, Rembrandt typically showcases Tulp's prominence with a large hat, surrounding him with an inner and an outer circle of men, some of whom gaze intently on the dissection, but others who more symbolically peer at the governing textbook as an arbiter of some predetermined wisdom. The power of Praelector Talp over his colleagues, his audience, and of course over the cadaver, is almost palpable when you look at this painting. And if we are, however, interested in it as a purely historical painting, then those faces wholly engaged in the lesser matter, as does the accuracy of the dissected arm. Uh, Rembrandt didn't, as was the tradition, include a list of the sitters in the painting, and there was a later restoration by Jan van Dijk in 1754, um, which changed the drawing on the page, which is held by the surgeon Hartmann Hartmanns, which originally was that of a limb, to a list which identified each surgeon. And then to further identify the protagonists, he even painted small numbers above each one's head. Um, one could go through these, I won't go through them unless one particularly um, is looking at each individual case. But the image, for example, at the bottom, the left, is a gentleman by the name of Jakob Kulvelt. He was probably added later. And its deference in style suggests that it was painted possibly by Rembrandt's pupil, Jakob Bakker. Next to Kulvert is a man called Adrian Cornelis Slabron, and then peering over the cadaver is another man, Jan Stavit. De Witt became actually a warden in 1630 and an examiner in 1632, um, uh, with von Slabron's career actually following suit. And then at Talp's right hand is a gentleman, Matthias Kalkin, Talp's personal assistant, and above him to Hartmann's right is a Jakob Bloch. And at the top, staring out, is Franz von Lernen, the only one never to hold any official position on the board. No member of the group is drawn in greater prominence to any other, and they contributed equal payment um, uh, for their likenesses. This is also possibly the first painting that Rembrandt signed only with his forename, as opposed to the traditional RHL, which is Rembrandt Harmensun of Leiden, which he had previously used. And such confidence would have reflected his growing stature. The art historian Jean-Marie Clark also points to a small, almost indistinguishable capital R, which is painted somewhat arrogantly around the navel of the, um, of the corpse. Now, when you look at this painting, it's decidedly odd for any anatomist or any surgeon. For those in the know, the disposition of Talp's fingers beautifully define the action of the muscle being dissected, to flex the knuckle but to straighten the digits. And in that action of a muscle, somewhat artfully called the flexor digitorum sublimus, or flexor digitorum superficialis in other texts, the hand can be held in a sort of formal salute or can grip another's hand in friendship. Now, to any anatomist or surgeon in this rather concrete atmosphere, there's unquestionably something very wrong with the way the musculature is drawn. The mass of the flesh is clearly coming off a common muscle origin, but on the wrong side of the elbow. And if it was painted in isolation, it's not impossible that Rembrandt, in contorting the forearm to get a feel for the sinuous pull of the muscles and the bowstring actions of each tendon, replaced this vision imperfectly within the picture. Another possibility is that he painted a mirror image of the forearm. 
even though there's extensive speculation on the anatomical accuracy, the obvious and glaring error makes any anatomist like myself really wince with discomfort. It's the same sort of discomfort experienced on looking at the Christ figure painted on the ceiling of Florence's baptistry, if you've ever seen that, where the Saviour's left hand faces downwards and points to hell, but it's so badly twisted on the wrist that it looks like an image that one might have painted of a marionette. And if an anatomical correctness was Rembrandt's aim, then the painting, no matter how revolutionary, must be adjudged somewhat of a failure. But if his principal interest was in painting a testament to Cartesian mechanics, then it simply soars, and in this light the individual arguments of anatomy seem fairly petty. The split, for example, in the hand of the tendons as they attach to the digits, one superficially decussating around the other deep tendon with its peripheral attachment, what became known much later as Camper's decussation, is actually perfectly represented uh, by Rembrandt. We might also spend innumerable hours debating whether uh, some of the surgeons or all uh, of whom would have had seniority that they would have already known Tulp's anatomical points quite well are or are not engaged in the lesson. There need be no specifics here too, deciding whether their faces are historical remnants or if appearing more aloof, they could be described as what are commonly called attributive portraits. Art historians like William Schuchbach here tie themselves sort of up into knots over which of the figures, like that of the top portrait of Florence Lerman, is with a wistful look of longing more emblematic of man's mortality, and which, like Taub himself, have an inherently optimistic demeanour, metaphysically calling to the spectator as some sort of exemplum sui, a model of oneself. And one could argue about the emotional expressions on each of these um, surgeons and what... Uh, it evokes in the spectator. There need be no, I think, specifics here too. Um, It's only the generalities that retain their significance, some adopting their constructed poses so as to inveigle spectators in an activity we'd never normally witness. And even then, when there's been extended speculation on the potential title of the book, which is open at the foot of the table, and whether surgeons in the room would have been entirely familiar with the contents of any of the texts proposed, Rembrandt's revolution is not in these specifics, but again, rather, in his generalities. Speculation, actually, concerning which book lies at the foot of the table is centred around the 1627 De Humani Corporis Fabrica of Andreas van der Spiegel, 1578-1625, so-called Spigalius, as some knew him, the man who was the prelector of Padua, when the painting was executed. And Vandenspiegel uh, was at the time considered the most prominent anatomist in Europe, and the image would suggest that Tulp could hold his own with either Vesalius or Spigalius, placing him amongst the contemporary pantheon of anatomists. This is the sort of level of interpretation that one would say. And so one need not, I think, be an anatomist to get this painting. The eye is instantly drawn not only to Tulp's preeminence, but more perhaps than anything, to the cadaver. The face of the cadaver is darkened and cyanotic, touched up heavily with Rembrandt's favourite oil, the bone black. The head is truncated onto the torso, making little distinction really between a hanging or a beheading with the head just neatly returned to its position. It's a face made deliberately unrecognisable, 
even if the criminal, Aris Kint, was well known. Despite his ignominious end, the body below is bathed in pure light, and it's no accident that the cadaver illuminates not only the painting, but as an instrument of study everyone and everything with which it is in contact. The shame and fear of anatomization, what in England the peasants called the otomy or the otomy, at the same time was considered a gift provided by the corpse in knowledge through dissection, thought so redeeming that many have compared it to the selflessness of Christ on the cross. One image of a dissected cadaver in Berengario de Carpi's 1521 Commentaria, for example, shows precisely that, a partially dissected corpse in crucifixion. And there's a similar 18th century pose by the artist Jacques Gamelin, 1738-1803, of the selfless cadaver in a crucifixion pose just before his dissection. It's another reason that Rembrandt's image of the thief Kint has light emanating from the subject anatomicum. But I suppose perhaps this is far too abstract. I'm not making myself clear. After all, there is someone dead lying on the slab and we can precisely pinpoint at least the genesis of this painting to the 16th of January 1632, the date of the execution. And what's more, we know much of the life of the condemned. Aris Kint, also known as Adrian Adrinsun, or the kid, who was a well-known thief whose crimes have been recorded in Leiden, Amsterdam and Utrecht. Kint's criminal record was actually recorded by Van Egen in his day, Anatomische Lesson von Rembrandt Mundblad, which was written in 1948. Kint was hanged for the armed robbery of a gentleman's cloak and, quote, punished by the rope on account of his wrongdoing, unquote. Rembrandt painting him Narhat Leven after life. The delicate, intact right hand in this painting has been shown with X-ray analysis to be a later addition, the luxury of a pentimento that artists can enjoy mid-painting to change their mind. And such pentimenti were a frequent feature of Rembrandt's caprice. Under the right hand, which appears much shorter than the left, also it's somewhat abnormal and distorted, is the image of a stump, and that's perfectly conceivable that for a thief, amputation of his hand might have been a suitable prior sentence. The anatomy picture is just a record of Kint's thieving recidivism that landed him now with the order of his execution. And for such a renowned rascal, the shadows on his face lying in a penumbra of death are as impersonal as possible. It was an effect Rembrandt would use in many other paintings to depict saintly mortality, borrowing the likenesses of those far less notorious than Kint that he had watched every day along Amsterdam's canals. The painting that we see today has undergone heavy restoration. After the French disbanded the Guild of Surgeons in 1798, all objets d'art were handed over to the Surgeons' Widows' Funds, whose poor management of the painting occasioned an urgent letter sent by Cornelius Apostol, who was the director of the Rijksmuseum, to the Commissioner of Education, Arts and Sciences, D.J. van Uyck, on the 26th of June, 1817. And in it, Upperstool noted, among other things, the deteriorating condition of Rembrandt's anatomy lesson painting. Virtually disintegrating from dry rot, it was decided in some desperation to divest the painting and to auction it off. But at the 11th hour, the sale was preemptively prevented by special decree from The Hague after an order by King Willem I, who had made arrangements for it to be moved to the Moritzhuis 
where it's remained ever since. Members of the Widows Fund finally decided in desperate financial circumstances to auction the painting off publicly, and this was done under the auspices of Cornelis Francois Rousse, including advertising the works by uh, Van Dyck and some by Rubens, which was supposed to be auctioned as well. But after receiving permission to proceed on the 2nd of May 1817, the public distress at selling the anatomy lesson of Taub off was so great that the Hague intervened on the 19th of May to stop the auction, issuing a royal decree on the 19th of July, which actually prevented the sale. And that was supplemented by pressure from a scathing article in the Amsterdamer Courant, and the government ended up paying 32,000 guilders for the painting. So it's an interesting background story um, to that. According to Ben Bruce, Petria Noble and Jorgen Vadum, uh, which is uh, Norbert Middlecoop's uh, Rembrandt under the scalpel, between 1700 and 1996 it's undergone, that is uh, the painting, at least 21 separate attempts at restoration, where much of the notation and methodology pertaining to its treatments have been fairly secret. The earliest commentary of deterioration is found in the Amsterdam City Chronicles of historian Melchior Fockens in 1662, with separate cleaning records by Urien Poole, 1665-1745, who used an unknown varnish to reduce surface dirt and the effects of blistering and craculure, that's the cracking of brittle pigments, after the widow's funder decided to leave the painting above a kitchen oven. A further cleaning by the restorer, James Quinkard, who we've met with poppy seed and turpentine wash, was followed in 1752 by a formal restoration by Jan van Dijk, who was known as the protector of Amsterdam's art, and who was an expert restorer who somewhat ironically likened his skills to that of a surgeon. Van Dijk's restorations received favourable commentary, actually, from Sir Joshua Reynolds when he visited the Moritz Hus in 1781. Van Dijk re-stretched the canvas, which was then glued with a hot iron to the original canvas, a procedure which he repeated three further times, and this was also done by the restorer Willem Hopman. Uh, these techniques had been recently described uh, by Robert Dossie in his The Handmaid to the Arts in 1777, which became particularly popular amongst European restorers. Over the centuries, the Tulp Anatomy lesson has been emulated partly in seriousness and partly in parody. It's appeared on the stamps of Tonga and in countless caricatures. Of these, I think, the most famous and the most formal was by Edouard Manet, 1832-1883, who paid homage to Rembrandt in an oil sketch that rather limply daubs paint in a manner unwilling to separate the delicacy of the dissection from its surroundings. Animals, or at least the hint of them, festoon Manet's painting, positioning crude, bloodied horses and donkeys between Tulp and his colleagues. As a young man, Manet spent much of his time copying paintings in the Louvre under the guidance of Thomas Couture, and he was heavily influenced in his travels by Franz Hals, Diego Velasquez and uh, Francisco Goya. He visited The Hague in 1856, where he copied the Tulp lesson in oils and then presented it to his physician, Dr Sideray. By Manet's end, racked with syphilis and severe rheumatism and suffering the final trauma of having his left foot amputated for gangrene, Sideray would repay his friend by caring for him in his last terminal illness, and the painting went to Sideray. 
Um, in a somewhat macabre parody, uh, the artist Yul Damaso put Nelson Mandela whilst he was still alive in the place of Kint in another parody of the Tulp painting and surrounded him with onlooking compatriots, which included various people from the South African government, Thabo Mbeki from the ANC, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, Jacob Zuma, F.W. de Klerk, Trevor Manuel, Helen Zeeler, and the current uh, uh, president of the country, Cyril Ramaphosa. And his dissection is carried out by a young boy in Kosi Johnson, born with HIV infection, who became an AIDS activist and who died at the age of 12. This painting actually by Damaso provoked widespread outrage in South Africa, particularly amongst Mandela's family members. And um, the artist had argued that it was a way to confront Mandela's mortality and use the iconography of the Tulp lesson to dissect, if you like, the humanity of the leader. It was actually a, a picture that was unveiled in a shopping centre in Johannesburg to rather widespread condemnation. After Tulp, Rembrandt was invited to produce a second painting to commemorate the first public dissection of the new prelector, Dr. Jan Diamond, 1619-1666. Now, very little is actually known about Diamond, who was appointed on the 27th of January, 1653, except that he was head physician at the hospital. He was an adept hospital politician. When Tulp announced his retirement in 1652 to move to local government, the city fathers had actually invited Johannes van Horn to replace him. And van Horn, somewhat in the shadow of his Leiden superior, Francis Delabo, who was known as Silvius, had initially studied law, but then moved to medicine, studying at the University of Padua, when his wealthy father, who was a governor of the Dutch East India Company, had financed his over, uh, overseas education. Fearful of losing him, Leiden University offered him a professorship in 1653, after which he decided not to go to Amsterdam, leaving the way open for the rather undistinguished Diamond. Van Horn was later instrumental in recruiting Amsterdam's longest-serving prelector Anatomie, Friedrich Reich. At any rate, Diamond had been in the post as prelector Anatomie for almost three years before his first anatomy dissection lesson. Uh, which was performed on the Flemish tailor and deist thief Joris Fontaine, who was also known as Black Jan or Black Jan, and who was condemned to death and then to dissection on the 27th of January in 1656. Fontaine, uh, 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 Fontaine's um, remains, um, that is the thief Fontaine's remains, were buried on the 2nd of February, after Damon had conducted three formal anatomy lessons on the body. And of the Thief Fontaine, the anatomy book actually records, quote, on January the 28th, 1656, there was punished with the rope Joris Fontaine of Deist, who by the worshipful lords of the law court was granted to us as an anatomical specimen, unquote. So there's a lot of notation about these uh, particular things from the anatomy book. Rembrandt's image on this occasion more starkly demonstrates a real dissection with the perishable contents of the abdomen now missing and with Diamond beginning the formal dissection of the brain. In the presence of his preparator, Giesbrecht Matthias Kalkon, 
an accomplished master in his own right of the Guild of Surgeons, who peers intently into the skull, we closely observe Diamond's hands teasing out the soft tissue sleeve of the brain, its dura mater. Calcone, looks, looking on respectfully, gently holds the top of the skull, the calvarium, inverted to receive small pieces of tissue, much as one might clasp a church collection plate. Actually, the calvarium, of course, bears its origin or relation to Calvary, which is the hill outside Jerusalem uh, where Christ was crucified. So uh, these are related to shapes and the origins of words. But it's, of course, only part of the painting, so badly damaged and consumed by the fire I mentioned before. The widows of the guild had seen fit to hang both of their Rembrandts above a chimney flue, where late on the 8th of November uh, 1723, a small but highly destructive fire was believed to have begun in the nearby refectory. We don't know of its negligent start, but by uh, the time it had by all accounts been doused, it had all but destroyed the diamond lesson and wrecked the lower half of Picanoy's Fontaine lesson as well, which we have already gone through. For some, the fragment of the painting that remains impairs our own perception of the greatness of Rembrandt's work. But for me, when you look at this painting, the cadaver sitting up almost, its abdomen dissected, Calcone holding the collection plate of the skull, nearby just some disembodied hands of diamond. For me, the powerful subject matter preserving just the disembodied hands of the prelector himself and leaving the cadaver completely unaffected by the fire somehow makes it more potent as an anatomy piece. In sparing Calcone, the flames have even fortuitously assigned a single witness as testament to the event. But perhaps a more arcane, I suppose, and certainly less emotional explanation of how it might have uh, been left like this is that the parts with the greatest amount of fire-resistant lead-white paint are the bits that survived. That's a much less romantic explanation. Fortunately, Rembrandt's preliminary drawing for the painting has survived too to show us his intentions, which along with Diamond, his assistant Calcone and the hapless cadaver Fontaine included four wardens, an examiner and two ordinary members of the guild. The examiner in the painting was Dirk Wiesch and there are a number of other wardens there, Kleis Fruit, Daniel Florianus, a very prominent member of the guild, Lawrence de Lange and Augustus Meyer. Uh, we won't go through the details of the, of the rest of the list. The foreshortening of the cadaver from below upwards, the artistic technique of Soto in Su, uh, for which the artist Andrea Montaigne, 1431-1506, was the greatest exponent, is a likely tribute to Montaigne's 1490 uh, Lamentation of the Dead Christ, and it transports Rembrandt's diamond into a kind of divine realm. That Soto in Su effect was also popular with Raphael's pupil, Giuliano Romano, as well as with Correggio, Tiepolo, Albrecht Dürer, Peter Paul Rubens, and Dürer's pupil, Hans Baldung Green, and Hendrik Goltzius. Um, so it's a particularly renowned technique. But this fragment has even loftier ambitions than just an allusion to the distance perspective of another great artist. It also directly refers to the specific anatomical technique which borrows from an image in Vesalius's Fabrica on precisely how to expose the brain. 
There are some differences today with Vesalius' original technique for examination of the contents of the cranial cavity. Vesalius, for example, first decapitated the cadaver, whereas it was only much later that dissection and removal of the brain was typically performed with the head intact and connected to the remainder of the body. And that latter technique is used by most anatomy schools currently, since it's less traumatic and certainly less distressing for students to perform. But the way the brain is being removed is exactly the way Vesalius described it and exactly the way we do it in the anatomy room today. It also directly refers to the specific anatomical technique where Black Yarn's head is even flexed forward, the body half propped up after his recent hanging, reversing the perspective back towards us and causing our gaze to run back and forth in an arc from the feet to the head and then back to Diamond's hands. The stark realism of the lobulated curves of the brain in Rembrandt's picture, the gyri as they're called, is an almost perfect copy of Vesalius. And much has been made of the symbolism of this part of the dissection, with Diamond reaching into the substance of the brain to extract the fibrous membrane, the falx cerebri, which normally separates the two cerebral hemispheres. In the human brain, the sharp borders of this falx trace out a kind of sickle shape between the right and the left lobe of the brain, with some likening its appearance to the scythe of the grim reaper. I think that's perhaps stretching credulity a little. The lower border of the falx is quite sharp and it could conceivably look like a scythe or more perhaps like a straight razor. However, such a shape can only be really appreciated after the brain has been removed. I think more likely, as Jonathan Sorday has pointed out, Diamond would have been seeking the pineal gland, what's called the conarium, as the physical embodiment of the soul in a method René Descartes had described just seven years before the painting was made. Sorday writes about this in his book The Body Emblazoned, a section of the human body in Renaissance culture. The dilemma of Rembrandt's portrayal of Fontaine would have been a practical need to limit the appearance of the dissection. If, for example, he'd shown the abdomen and the thorax empty, as it would normally be by the time the brain was dissected, then the appearances would have resulted in so much mutilation of the subject anatomicum that its humanity could not really readily be appreciated, and it might have just appeared like a sort of piece of meat. Broadly, the diamond lesson appears more visceral and far less sanitised than the talp lesson. In a dissertational thesis on Rembrandt's anatomy lessons, Bajali Smith has argued that the diamond piece is distinctly tactile, but it might be more accurate to suggest that Rembrandt's second offering is more intimate and more engaged with the raw brutality of dissection than his first picture. He'd clearly changed as a person since the first lesson painting, suffering in the interim, his wife's death and his bankruptcy, as well as the chronic vicissitudes of the life of a portrait painter on commission and the opprobrium of some of Amsterdam's more puritanical councilmen for his unconventional living arrangements. Rembrandt's young wife, Saskia van Ullenberg, whom he had sketched so often and incorporated into his paintings and landscapes from Cassel to Dresden, had died just short of her 30th birthday from tuberculosis exacerbated some nine days after giving birth to their son Titus. Before them there was a boy Rumbatus and two girls, both named Cornelia after Rembrandt's mother, 
and they died and were buried in the nearby Tudekirk Cemetery. But taking Saskia's nurse, Gertie Dierks, as a mistress was for Amsterdam's noblesse oblige absolutely intolerable, even if Rembrandt reneged on a marriage proposal and tried later to have Gertie committed to an asylum. More was to come after this. He scandalously took a new mistress, his housekeeper, Hendrika Stoeffels, only to see her too die soon after leaving him with an illegitimate daughter, who naturally was named Cornelia. One cannot look at Rembrandt's artistic evolution, even in the way he handles the materiel of the cadaver, and not have the impression about how his tumultuous life would have affected his style. He matures and abstracts, treating the flesh of the corpse over time just as he portrays two slaughtered ox carcasses, the image he would have seen every time at the meat market on his way to a dissection in the Vlieshaal. These two pictures of ox flesh are very famous, but they're separated by 16 years, just as a dissection uh, of Tulp and that of Damon are separated by 24 years, each pair revisiting a theme that is now imbued with the artist's own experience and suffering. The Diamond painting is more of a violation, distinctly more corporeal and conspicuously more disturbing than that of Tulp. For the Dutch cultural theorist Mika Baal, Rembrandt's anatomy paintings emotively suggest that, quote, the substance of the paint is also the substance of death, unquote. With the light that emanates from the cadaver in Tulp, there are clear parallels that can be drawn with the corporeal Christian symbolism that has in religious pictures figures pointing at wounds and glorifying them as stigmata. Smith suggests for example, in her thesis that Rembrandt might have deliberately shrouded the hands and feet in the diamond painting so that the possibility of stigmata could not be excluded. And she also compares the Leiden dissections to religious ceremonies, the corpse positioned as if it were on a high altar and the proceduralism likened to the flesh and blood symbolism of the Eucharist. The art historian Sir Kenneth Clarke was unable to resist the comparisons of Rembrandt's disconnected hands in diamond with the hovering presence of a high priest operating in a converted chapel and attended by an acolyte. In practical terms, what Rembrandt achieves with the fragmented diamond painting over and above the Tulp picture is to more radically separate that which is alive from that which is clearly putrefying, rotten and dead. Yet paradoxically, by the time he has executed the diamond lesson, he does so by blurring rather than by defining the edges of one to the other. His epiphany and the depiction of death then in diamond is to reverse that sharp separation between the body interior and its exterior, which he accomplished with so much success in Tulp. When Rembrandt's only legitimate heir, his son Titus, died in 1668, Rembrandt was a broken man who'd moved out of the great house in the Briefstrat that he had shared with Saskia during the heady days of his patronage. His work was, in this last year of his life, hastily constructed without the polished finish of his youth and with a later sketchier style which perfectly captured the physicality of his own ageing and once more tender but so abstract that it provoked the sneers of the visiting art critics and even of his own pupils. 
as Netherlandish tastes changed Rembrandt struggled to adjust with the widespread dissatisfaction with some of his later paintings, for which he was openly criticised uh, by his pupils Gerard de la Resse and Samuel Dietsch von Hoogstarten. Both of these pupils made derogatory remarks, accusing him of an alter stil, a style of an old age, or of ronding, rounding out, and utifing, wavering in space. Towards the end, the attacks became relentless. The art critic Arnold Hubraken, who was a pupil of Van Hoogstraten and who detested Rembrandt's technique of painting nudes from life, had called them disgusting. So he was absolutely, by this time, out of favour, and he'd just lost his last remaining child. If 1642 had started well with his greatest painting, The Night Watch, things had ended badly with Saskia's death. He'd simply endured too much, removing himself from the most lucrative styles of commission, living through the economic downturn following the First Dutch-Anglo War, and weathering a very public censure of what today some would call a bohemian lifestyle. Unable to compete with the print distribution of his rivals, Peter Paul Rubens and Antony van Dyck, and with copyists of his earlier work eating into his meagre income, Rembrandt had outlived his popularity. Jan Diamond had hardly distinguished himself, leaving the role of prelector free. The position had been offered to one of the hospital physicians, Matthew Slade, but Slade had declined instead supporting an unknown young man, Friedrich Reich, as an alternative. Reich had taken a more traditional path of advancement, first as an apothecary's assistant, and then proceeding as a physician through the Collegium Medicum. But even Reich had waited warily in The Hague for a few weeks before accepting the post, just before New Year's Day of 1666. Even though he had started out as a relatively unknown quantity, Reich remained prelector for more than 60 years, dominating the city with control over the graduation of all municipal midwives and developing a large obstetric practice in the process, whilst establishing jurisdiction over the forensic outcome of every autopsy performed in the city. These positions of power allowed him to engage in his greatest love, the Hortus, founding with a fellow apothecary and amateur botanist, uh, Jan Comelin, one of the finest medicinal gardens in the country. And it was only then that the Reich actually became one of Europe's premier uh, collectors. Beginning with his dissections every morning and tending to his garden, Reich would then move through his practice during the day, dealing with the political matters of accreditation, and then round back for some late-night cadaver dissection. He became famous for his ability to embalm small babies, and he made them appear so lifelike that he filled his home with them, opening it up as a museum. His rising star saw him receive permission to dissect those dying in the infirmaries, uh, a privilege which was supported by Slade. Public dissections under Reich's direction became far less raucous events than they'd have previously been, with a new set of rules of decorum for the conduct of anatomy lessons released by the Collegium Medicum. Under these new regulations, <coughs> speculators uh, or spectators, pardon, uh, were uh, forbidden for 
example, to talk or to laugh during the lesson, and if specimens were passed around the room for inspection, there were warnings that no one was permitted to make off with any of them. Um, the Guild subsequently saw fit to commission his portrait, and Rush had already performed his first public anatomization over four days, beginning on the 19th of March 1670, when he dissected uh, Pasquier Joris van Ieperen, who was a criminal from Ypres, who had been uh, hanged, and he was, along with Egberts, the only prelector to ever have his portrait commissioned by the Guild twice. The first lesson of Reich, the first lesson painting, is important as it reflects, albeit somewhat ethereally, the obsession Reich had to preserve tissues and whole corpses so that there would be a freedom to conduct their anatomizations past the winter months and beyond the, more, the mere few days of the natural process of decay. Um, for Reich, anatomy and art would coincide perhaps as for no other prelector before or since. His father-in-law, Peter Post, had been a principal architect for the city, but was also an accomplished artist, as were two of his uncles, Jan and Moritz. And he also fathered two daughters, Rachel, 1664-1750, and Anna, 1666-1741, both of whom became famous in their own right for their still-life paintings. Not content with these connections, Arash ensured a dynasty of artists when he encouraged his daughter Rachel to marry the painter Urien Poole. Arash himself turned his hand to drawing butterflies and insects, although some had commented that his art was fairly disproportionate and a bit pedestrian. Rachel Arash's daughter trained with Willem van Alst and Jan Bavich de Heem, both very experienced still-life artists with a rich tradition of Vanitas-style painting. Reich, uh, that is Rachel Reich, along with Maria van Oosterwijk, were amongst the foremost women painters of the Dutch Golden Age. Um, they were noted for their unrivaled images of flowers and for she was noted in particular for her method of juxtaposing species which would not normally be in proximity in nature. Rachel was actually a far more talented technical painter than her husband, her Urien Poole, joining him in Dusseldorf in 1708 after an invitation extended to Poole by the Elector pa Palatine of Bavaria, Johann Wilhelm. And both Poole and Rachel Reich remained in Germany until Wilhelm's death in 1716. Although also an accomplished artist, Anna Reich gave up painting when only 21 years of age. Uh, she married the merchant Isaac Hullenbrook in 1688. Now, um, not really content with this, um, Reich built complicated dioramas, which have all now sadly been lost, placing dead infants in particular centre stage of small morality plays that tugged at the puritanical Calvinist heart of the public and which spoke of the piety of his approach not only towards anatomy but to life in general. Adrian Bucker, uh, circa 1635 to 1684, may not have been an obvious choice by the Guild to paint the anatomy lesson of Friedrich Reich, but he was well connected. He was the nephew of the painter Jakob Adrian's Bucker, 
and he had already produced a, a last judgment for the town hall in Dumb Square in 1655, for which he'd been highly praised by the influential art critic Arnold Hubracken. In 1670, Backer painted a somewhat traditional portrait of a remarkably youthful Reich among a group of guild wardens, the classical pilasters and niches with sculptures of Apollo and Asclepius, the god of medicine, uh, gods of medicine, are suggestive of earlier frontispieces of the great European anatomy textbooks, which were adorned with so many classical references and which were less reliant on the specific details of dissections. The painting of Reich is symbolic in its treatment of the dissection process, and on the dissected cadaver. Reich is seen gently grasping the soft tissue of the groin, and it's a reflection of his principal interest in the lymphatic system with its collection of lymph groin nodes. Having only recently written his first paper on lymphatics, his 1665 Dissolidatio Valvularum in Basis Lymphaticus et Lacteus, the picture is proclaiming him a master of the system. But as a dissection piece, it falls limp, the cadaver seems almost like a sleeping model, posed and rosy. It was certainly not the body of someone recently hanged, but it's there to symbolise the skill that the Reich had in body preservation. The great anatomist need not concern himself with the normal protocol of dissection, and it explains the almost wistful expression on his face, calm and unhurried. In this manner, the painting was more a testament to his embalming skill than to his dissecting prowess, and Reich could consequently afford to appear composed. During his time as prelector, spanning six decades, he conducted 31 dissection workshops, six of which were performed for the first time outside of Amsterdam's harsh winter season. It was a unique schedule that made the university the envy of every other city where dissection was taking place. Reich's lessons were spread over many years and were recorded in the anatomy book, the book was started some time between 1639 and 1645 when the new anatomy theatre in the Waghaus was built. And with his embalming technique, Reich was able to conduct lessons outside of the winter months in April 1668, April 1673, May 1679, May 1684, July 1709 and April 1715. Corruption within the guild had taken some toll, and through it all it took almost two years before Reich would be willing to conduct a new public anatomy lesson in 1679. Actually, on the 7th of May, he publicly dissected the criminal Piet Kneppel, who'd been hanged the day before. The peace in the guild didn't last long, when in 1680 his rivals, Gewert Bidlou and Connording, had Nicholas Maas portray them in a work for which Reich refused to sit, and this was the painting which had caused such a public fuss when it had been shifted to pride of place in the Guildhall, pushing out the beloved painting of the Prelector Egbertson, which needed the Burgomasters to intervene in order to settle this rather trivial dispute. This Actually, that ridiculous dispute was resolved by uh, the diplomat Nicholas Witson, who ordered in the Guild's resolution book that on the as of the 22nd of December 1682, no painting could be moved without permission. Sort of ridiculous and trivial. And those who protested about the original movement of the painting all had sitting portraits in the next painting of Reich by Jan van Neck. Although one of them, a Peter Miser, 
who had suggested that the mice painting should be taken back to its original place was also included as a sitter. So as I've said, given the wrangling, the new portrait permitted the Reich to choose not only the sitters but also the subject and the artist. And the one painter available, it seems, was the well-connected Jan van Eck, 1634 to 1714, who'd been apprenticed to Adrian Bucker but who had spent some time inauspiciously as an interior decorator. Now, if anything, van Neck was more known for his portraits of nudes, but Hubraken recorded that commissions would come because of the Neck's engaging personal manner and more than talent because of his wealth of entertaining stories. The Neck's painting was unique, and although not of the technical skill or emotive power of Rembrandt's Talp lesson, for example, it stands alone with a raw conveyance of its subject matter. In the painting, Aisha's centre stage, dissecting a dead infant and surrounded by impeccably dressed acolytes. It was painted in 1683, although there's no recorded public anatomy lesson for this time, and it represents a departure from the typical anatomy lessons on the condemned, alerting to the most serious subject of stillbirth. Uh, each identity is not completely clear in this, but the sitters include Antony van Pamberg, Abel Horst, Peter Adrians, Andres Berkelman, Jean de Milly, and Reich himself, who's holding a pair of forceps. To the left, a colleague, Andres Berkelman, identifies a grossly oversized placenta as the life giver. The child, dead child, calmly grasping its own umbilical cord, its feet gently and lovingly crossed in repose. The issue would have been very topical and a constant reminder to Reich's nemesis, the rather arrogant Gewirt Bidlou, who was just up the road in Leiden, who had just endured recent litigation after delivering a stillborn child and badly injuring the mother. Actually, um, this case is one of a Elizabeth Yarns, it became fairly notorious, with Bidlou injuring her rectum during delivery <coughs> of a dead infant. And a formal investigation was conducted by Berkelman with a request by Reich not only to sanction Bidlou, but to also clean up corruption within the Guild. And even though an ally of Reich, Berkelman was widely regarded as unimpeachable, and his pointing to the infant in the Vanek picture perhaps is uh, a piece of propaganda suggesting a warning not to engage in obstetrics without perhaps the help of the great man Reich himself. Reich stares outward in the picture and compels his followers to abjure the consequences of any birth, that is poorly attended, emphasising, I think, himself as a man midwife in a world up until then dominated by untrained women. Actually, similarly to midwifery in England, the insertion of physicians, the man midwives, was initially regarded by the standard midwives with great suspicion. When William Smelly, 1697-1763, started delivering babies in the 1730s in London, developing the technique of forceps extraction, he was greeted with considerable hostility and was openly referred to as a, quote, great horse godmother of a he midwife, unquote. It's a nice quote, I like that. Um, to the right, in the picture, Reich's son, Hendrik, respectfully brings the skeletal remains of another child on a small pedestal. It gestures in a gentle danse macabre as if to show the innocent dead infant of the happy life it could have experienced if only it had been protected by the competent hands of someone like Reich Senior himself. 
The image was also a reminder that one of the commonest causes of stillbirth was, of course, a tightened cord around the infant's neck. There's also some poetic license in the painting, since in 1683, Hendrik would have been 20 years old, and yet he's presented here as a young boy. Hendrik went on to become a successful physician and married the artist's daughter, Sibrige van Neck. The fetal skeleton points with one hand to a hat under Hendrik's arm, and with its other to the hat of Reich Senior. Hats, of course, a symbol of the praelector and of qualified physicians. The picture may also have been somewhat aspirational, expressing the hope that Reich Jr. would follow in his father's footsteps. Or perhaps it's a simpler statement about the relationship between all fathers and sons. No matter how accomplished Hendrik became, his father always may have envisaged him as a child. The imagery, although shocking, seems almost serene and does not convey the prevailing tumour the Guild and its members were enduring. By the time of the execution of this painting, most of the examiners had been privately pocketing fees from sham examinations and levying payments for their time during dissection. The widows of surgeons who had been provided with small stipends no longer received them, and the wardens had suspended most of the guild's bookkeeping so that their activities couldn't be traced. The statutes excluded Jews from entry into surgical training, although in one bright light in this story the wardens ignored that last resolution. The guild was frequently lampooned by satirical pamphlets and it fell to Reich's protégé and Abraham Titzing, who was engaged in a biography of Reich, to clean matters up. Titzing was a prejudiced and obstreperous ship surgeon and the architect of the no-Jew policy, refusing them entry into surgical training or examinations while still permitting ex-barber surgeons free access. The collective portrait pieces representing the hallowed public dissections were for a while no longer commissioned, and the Guildhall wall space was dominated by smaller, paid-for pieces which portrayed the wardens and which dispensed with any reference to cadavers. Whatever the atmospheric politics, even the move in 1691 of the dissecting rooms from the old Kleiner Vlieshaal to the dedicated new Theatrum Anatomia in the Antonisberg, built like a Roman amphitheatre and proudly displaying the Reich family coat of arms, was not accompanied by any grand inaugural dissection painting. Lesser-known wardens waited a cautious eight years to be painted, with one in a work by Poole holding an oversized heart and the other the glass pipe that embalmers used to blow preservative fluids by mouth into the arterial tree. It's a painting by Urien Poole that's at the Berhav Museum in Leiden. To replenish that which was lost in the Great Guildhall fire, it fell to Cornelis Troost, 1696-1750, to portray the wardens in a new 1728 anatomy piece. Troost had trained under the portraitist Arnold Boonen, himself an established painter for the Collegium, who was too ill to carry out the commission. But Trist's piece would soon be used as visual proof of yet another even more serious fraud committed by the Guild's wardens, which by 1731 would see all but one dismissed and the last resign in disgrace. Trist had already impressed with the portrait of the inspectors of the Collegium some four years earlier, but here his picture was used in evidence as decisively as a photograph might be. The 1728 Trust portrait of the inspectors was ultimately used against them 
when it was realised that the diploma one of the sitters had jealously guarded in his 1731 portrait of three wardens of the Surgeon's Guild had been falsely obtained. That information was actually uncovered by Titsing, who ensured complete replacement of the board, by which time two examiners had died, three wardens were rendered ineligible for re-election, and a further three were dismissed. Afterwards, the assistant, the only one left, Peter Clevering, who was the stepson of one of the um, uh, wardens, uh, Van Vieven, felt compelled to resign. Before this, Troost had produced his anatomy lesson of Dr. Willem Roll, and it's a somewhat underrated masterpiece with a remarkably realistic exploration by the artist of the right knee joint uh, of a cadaver. The inclusion in the piece of the dissection assistant Peter Clevering van Lieven shows him hovering above the requisite bowl used for discarded tissues, a hangover from the days when the surgeons worked with the barbers. The face of the corpse is unshielded and highly realistic, showing no signs of an execution. The fact that the dissection could be performed on the isolated knee was a testament to the embalming skills of Reich, who, although still prolector, was so infirm that his lessons had been taken over by his successor, Dr. Roll, 1700-1775. Now, Roll was formally appointed Reich's successor in 1727, although he'd been running the dissection classes since the 89-year-old Reich had broken his hip after falling over a stove at his home. Reich's last dissection took place between the 11th and the 18th of December in 1723, when he was 85 years old. There's no recorded anatomy lesson took place in 1728, with Roll performing a public dissection on the 25th of January 1729. The painting has a preliminary drawing, which is available, um, and uh, includes only half of the wardens invited. I won't go through who the sitting wardens are. Roll's appointment was not particularly smooth. Reich had groomed no natural successor, and Roll was somewhat renowned for his laziness, forcing him to fight for the post against another assistant surgeon, a young Sermesh, who had been delivering a lot of Reich's lectures since 1720. Sermesh was a notorious self-promoter who had, through a series of pamphlets distributed on his behalf by agents, been embellishing his standing and who confidently expected the position. Actually, in one pamphlet of support for Sermis, it was claimed that, quote, in the fields of anatomy and surgery, his likes are seldom seen in the course of an entire century. I like people who promote themselves that way for an elected position. But Sermis disappeared as rapidly as he'd risen, and he was dismissed by the Collegium in 1723 after the death of a three-year-old child following a failed attempt to remove a bladder stone. With the unsuitability of Sermish, Reich's next potential candidate, proffered, was Arendt Kant, 1695-1723, who was a very skilled draughtsman and anatomist, and who seemed a natural successor, but who succumbed at 28 years of age to a mysterious fever in the same month that Reich had sent in his name-proposing recommendation. Although he... Remained pro-elector until 1755, Roll was considered, quote, poor quality, unquote, and he conducted little teaching with the Guild, receiving many complaints about his style and lack of attendance. It was reported of Roll that, quote, if he was not sick, he was probably travelling 
or on vacation, unquote. Reich then favoured the young anatomist Lorenz Heister, 1683-1758, who had returned to his Amsterdam home fresh from seeing action as an army surgeon in the bloody battles with the French at Oudenaarde and Malplaquet. Heister's surgical colleague Hendrik Ullhorn, 1687-1746, who had trained in Paris, also formally applied for the position in 1724, citing the need for a surgeon to head anatomical teaching. But Ullhorn was unknown to the Collegium and thought by them of insufficient experience to be considered for the post. Ullhorn actually railed against the Reich seven years after his death, openly stating that although he thought Reich a godly man and a distinguished researcher, that he was a weak teacher, dissector and surgeon, and arguing that during his long tenure there'd been little serious surgical training in Amsterdam at all. The scandals aside, Troost remained at least for a while above the fray and maintained the trust of both the city and the guild, painting further group portraits for the Armoners' orphanage. But following the scandal of the surgeon's diplomas, to which Troost had contributed with his painting but really essentially had nothing to do with, he uh, severed all guild connections. After the diploma scandal, Troost abandoned the guild, moving back to his great love, which was designing sets for the Amsterdam theatre. In 1735, he was persuaded by the physicians of the Collegium to paint a portrait of Hermann Brahave. Now somewhat in decline, the Guild never really recovered after it had torn itself apart in 1732. Not even the election of the new prelector, the renowned scholar Petrus Camper, 1722-1789, could steady the ship, although it occasioned a commemoration painting to record the event by the artist Tibbet Regters, 1710-1768, who had trained for five years under Quinkhard. We can safely include it within the canon of anatomy paintings, with Camper standing above a decapitated and inverted head, scalpel in one hand and forceps in the other. Titsing had felt that the painting would at least gain some legitimacy if overseen by the watchful likeness of Roll's bust, Roll perhaps the only man thought innocent of the recent guild shenanigans and deemed incapable of any corruption. Titsing himself included himself as a sitter in two of the guild paintings in an attempt to place himself on par with Regbets and the Reich. On paper, perhaps Camper's curriculum vitae might have been thought sufficient to rescue the Guild's reputation. He'd graduated from Leiden in both philosophy and medicine. He'd studied under a leading lights. His philosophy professor, François Hemsterhus, was an acquaintance of Goethe. His physics teacher, Peter van Muschenbroek, had invented the Leiden jar, a means of electrical storage. And his chemistry professor, William Gravesend, had lectured across northern Holland on Newton's laws and Newton himself was a personal friend. Camper had, like so many in Leiden, come under the gentle influence of Hermann Berhave, who was revolutionising the practice of clinical medicine as a science of observation and deduction. Camper was highly respected, well-travelled and of a strict disposition, introducing fines for all those not attending the dissection lessons which he had duly resurrected. He had conjoint appointments in surgery and anatomy at the universities of Franeker in 1749, Amsterdam in 1755 and Groningen in 1763 
and was well regarded for his anatomical drawings, not only of the human anatomizations he performed, but also of primate species. Camp had an abiding interest in the anatomy of the hand, and in an effort to try and understand the features behind its dexterity, he published an entire atlas on the subject, the Demonstrationum Anatomico-Pathologicarum Liber Primus Brachiae Humani Fabricum et Morbus in uh, Groningen University. He'd already impressed teachers in his medical training through London, Paris and Switzerland with his thesis on the mechanics of the eye. And during his time as prelector, he published three major anatomy texts on the arm, pelvis and groin, and was one of the first to describe the condition of groin hernia. Outside of medicine, he was an active politician. He was the mayor of Vorkum, a member of the Friesland Admiralty, and was also on the state council. And his extensive medical cabinet was purchased by King William I for the University of Groningen in 1820 after the death of his son, Adrian Gillis. Uh, much of the collection was destroyed by a fire in 1906. Many, however, followed Camper for his theory of metamorphosis, which he believed showed the common configuration of all animals and which described the bone structure of all the world's tribes. He was a charismatic figure, to be sure, but his theories, which described the facial angle, a crossing line between the jaw, the earlobe and the upper lip, were used to order some of the larger European collections of skulls drawn together from the seafaring expeditions and then used to create a racially based and biased hierarchy and narrative of human development. The ultimate aim of this perversion of anatomy and anatomical measurement was designed to prove that the skulls of Africans and Asians, which ran from their prognathic protruding jaws back towards their receding foreheads, were evidence that they were developmentally inferior races. And um, this is a separate subject. I may tackle this, I think, in a later podcast, the subject of skull collection and the use of craniometric measurements in the differentiation of human races and in the separation of primate species from humans, um, which is uh, a separate uh, and important uh, subject, a perversion, really, of anatomical craniometric measurements. Camper, making his measurements on the skulls of orangutans, Barbary apes, sloths, manatees and kangaroos ranked them in his 1794 book The Connection Between the Science of Anatomy and the Arts of Painting, Drawing, Statuary, etc. Um, here, face to face, was a clear line between the graphical ideal of mankind, his intellectual capacity and the dimensions of his cranial vault. Even if he arrived at the wrong conclusion, Camper was convinced that art and science met on this matter at the same point. The social implications of accepting Camper's views, even if he intended them for different purpose, were profound. On Camper's side was a multiracial or polygenistic origin of man. On the opposite side would be Darwin's monogenistic common ancestor. And that makes the difference as to how he viewed skulls as well. With Camper's anatomy lay a racial superiority that through the will of God had placed people of a certain disposition 
in their natural habitats. People were in Africa because God intended it, according to Camper, and that perverted the philosophies of his contemporaries like Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Here, an acceptance of a fundamental difference in racial anatomy allowed adherents to assert their view for a rightful and even a natural propensity for one ethnic group to exert its economic and political dominion over another. The consequences of anatomy and the acceptance of anatomical racial difference were very great, and behind all of the intellectual discussion driven by defined points of cranial anatomical difference and measurement was the desire to distinguish those noble savages considered sufficiently human that they might be converted to the Christian faith from others who were destined only for enslavement. Campus tenure at the Amsterdam Guild was short-lived, 1755 to 1761. He was succeeded by Andreas Bonn, 1738 to 1818. But by 1798, the Guild was disbanded and its teaching responsibilities became a government concern of the Ministry of Education. Bonn was portrayed in an image by Adria de Lely in 1792 in the dedication of the drawing room of the Felix Merit Society by Dr Andreas Bonn, which is in the Amsterdam Museum. And so I don't consider it an anatomy painting as it was not commissioned by the Guild and it includes neither surgeons nor wardens nor a cadaveric subject anatomicum. Andreas Bonn possessed a cabinet containing mostly congenital abnormalities which was sold along with many of his medical instruments to the University of Leiden in 1819. The trail of Amsterdam's anatomy lessons might end here, but perhaps we could, in light of the prevailing anthropology, include in the last of the series a 1925 painting of their anatomy professor Louis Bolk, 1866 to 1930, dissecting of all things an orangutan. <laughs>